On January 17, 1995, there was a 6.9 magnitude earthquake that struck the city of Kobe, Japan. I don't know if any of you remember it or have seen pictures of it. Um, As I was looking this week, um, catastrophic destruction. Um, In that portion of Japan where the the city is uh, along a bay, there was a lot of overpass roads that kind of shoot over like regular roads. They just build roads upon roads, and everything is just tumbled to the ground. The quake had killed 6,400 people, and nearly 400,000 buildings were affected. Shortly after the earthquake, the Japanese government had uh, commissioned engineers to study the debris of the buildings to learn about uh, building structure, engineering, things like that. And and what they concluded was that any building that was built pre-1940 that was made out of wood and bamboo and clay, they were completely destroyed. Uh, the buildings that were made from 1940 to 1980 fared better due to modern technologies that were being used. And, and the ones that were the most modern fared the best as they were engineered with earthquakes in mind. If you know, if you've ever looked at a map or a globe, I guess, and where Japan sets, it sets on a major fault line in the Pacific Ocean. But there were sections that were in Kobe, Japan, where every building, no matter what, whether they were old or new, they were completely obliterated. And no matter, no amount of engineering could save them. And the engineers concluded that the building structure could endure the circumstances, or that no building structure could endure the circumstances that happened at the ground. See, at these buildings, at these sites where all the buildings were destroyed, the ground liquefied, being so close to the Pacific Ocean. I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about some of the things that we're going to talk about this morning, and it made me think of the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 and following, Jesus says this in the Sermon on the Mount, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against the house and it fell and and great was its fall. And so it is with us where our house is built. When you start thinking about the kind of structures that we build on the ground, they, they can be all different. I mean, you can have, you can invest a lot of resources in building the strongest building that is possible to stand. And yet, if it's built on the wrong ground, it will not stay. Some of you this morning may feel like the ground around you is melting. Could be a diagnosis that a doctor gave you or someone that you love. It could be a spiritual struggle that you've been facing and and just overcome with, or the spiritual state of someone that you love that you've been praying for. 
could be a financial problem, work issue, some challenge that you're facing in a relationship. There's a a whole list of practical issues that can cause the ground around us to seem like it's liquefying. And when you think about where we are in the text in Romans 9, if you've been with us any length of time, you may wonder as we are in this portion of Scripture, how on earth does Romans 9 line up with my marital struggle, my job issue, the diagnosis that I received? How does Romans 9 help me with my struggle with sin and temptation? And how does this uniquely challenging passage fit in my life? Let me tell you something. Jesus said that if you hear His words and put them into practice, you have a strong foundation. No matter what happens, no matter how hard the storms of life beat against you, you will stay because Jesus keeps you. Listen, if you don't have the Scriptures to trust in, to build on, what else do you have? What else is there? And that's the crisis of where we're at in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. The question that is posed in our passage this morning is, has God's word failed? Can we trust it? Is it secure? Because it seems from Paul's perspective as he's writing about God's heart for this nation of people that are called the Jewish people, his, his prized chosen people, it seems like they've disregarded all the promises and they've rejected him and the promised one Jesus. And we talked about that last week as we walked through the opening verses that Paul, even though he was primarily a, a, a minister of the gospel to the Gentile people, he came from a Jewish background and he had a great heart and a desire to see his brethren saved. And God had given them every opportunity. In fact, Paul went so far to say that his desire was so strong that his brethren be saved that he would rather be accursed and sent to hell so that they would find faith in Jesus. God had given these people the covenants, the promises, the covenants of the Old Testament, and some of them we're going to come in contact with this morning. He gave the law, not just the 613 commands that we so uh, well uh, separate from the Old Testament and say this is what you should do and shouldn't do, but the law, the, the governing, guiding word that God gave his people to say, if you're in a relationship with me, this is how I want you to live. He gave them the temple service that they could come and meet with Him and serve Him and enjoy Him and offer sacrifices to Him to be made right with Him. And He gave them promises through the prophets that there is a coming healer, Savior, and Messiah. They had the fathers 
And again, we're going to be introduced to some of these fathers this morning, like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They had the pedigree that the Christ came through their family line. They had it all. God had served up all of this truth, all of this hope, all of this promise up for them, and they rejected it. And so we come to this chapter in chapter 9 and we're confronted with some of the most difficult doctrine in all of Scripture to swallow. It's really a challenging chapter. In fact, what we're going to talk about this morning are going to be things that you don't hear in Sunday school as a kid. There's not a lot of songs being sung about the things that we're going to learn and walk through. And so it may feel like, for some of you, that the theological ground that you had trusted in for so long is liquefying. Maybe that's good. Maybe it's good for God to recalibrate our hearts to His truth and begin to see what His Word is saying so that we can be sure in our own trials. In Romans 9, Paul did not give this chapter so that theologians can just sit around in their ivory towers and debate and discuss and fire theological truths at and give and receive in that way. It's not a theological puzzle that we need to figure out the mystery or use some kind of equation to understand what Paul is saying. It's not something that once you you get it, that you can feel good about just how smart you are. That happens, unfortunately. May I suggest to you that if you think that you get it, you haven't. That's something that I've been wrestling with over the last few weeks. Not that I ever thought, oh, I get it. But I feel like I get to a place of, okay, uh, I'm at a better understanding. I, I feel comforted about what I know, and then I read passages again that kind of hit me uh, up the side and think, oh my, well, how far do I have to go to understand God's Word? In fact, the man that wrote these words that we're going to look at this morning said two chapters later in Romans 11, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. That's Paul admitting that he didn't even have it all figured out. He's the guy that wrote it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 9 has divided the church. God's people have separated over the interpretations of of what Paul was saying and, and what he's not saying. And I would say to you that God did not give his word to divide his people. He gave his word to build up his people, to strengthen his people. I think there's a great pastoral concern in what Paul is saying in these verses that we're going to face troubles. And as we face these troubles, we have a solid rock that we can always go to that will help us endure and bear the weight of the struggles that we face. Our foundations will not buckle because we are built on the sure foundation of God's Word. You need to know where you're going to stand and why you stand there. 
and what it means because frankly at times to be a believer in Jesus you're going to be faced with things that seem questionable challenging where you're going to scratch your head and say I have no no idea on earth of what is happening in my life I don't know why I don't know what's going on I don't know why I'm facing this and when you face these troubles, much like uh, the people of God face these troubles, as Paul introduces this thought, there might be a, a temptation or assumption to say, maybe God's word failed in my life. Maybe it isn't as true. Maybe, maybe we can't stand on those promises that we sung earlier. And we need to know again and again that God's word is a sure rock. It is a safe place. It is the very place where we hear his word to us. I pray that you see that God's Word is sure this morning. And as a result of that, even in difficulty, even in the difficult things of His Word, you see a God who is completely sovereign over His creation. With that said, I I want to read to you this passage beginning in verse 6. I'm going to read through verse 13. I wasn't sure where I was going to end up stopping this week. I I thought maybe through verse 9, and then I thought, well, I better continue on because it kind of fits together that way. So I'm going to read verses 6 through 13 for you. Paul says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise as regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise, at this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born, and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, But because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That's the God that we are introduced to in this passage. A God who chooses by sovereign grace. Chooses one over the other. And we are invited to consider what does it mean that God loved one and hated the other? We don't talk about that in Sunday school, right? I mean, if you've been with us in the Senior Saints Bible study, we've been going through the book of Genesis and and we're in the, the place of Jacob and and Esau, and and what it means, and I can tell you, it's not just a children's Sunday school thing, Um, some of the wisest walking with the Lord, the longest people in our church have sat in that study and said, this is a hard thing, and it is, I can't say that we're going to solve all the questions this morning, in fact, you might leave here with more questions, and that's okay, because God's word has not failed, it is true. So as we look at this passage, we want to begin to see what, what, what God affirms as we consider how his word has not failed. 
and his sovereignty. And if you remember in Romans 9, Paul's focus is on these people, the nation of Israel, and where do they belong in God's plan? God made all of these promises. The whole Old Testament is focused on these people. 39 books in the Old Testament are focused on what God wanted to do through these people. And now it seems in the day of Paul, in the day of the church, that Israel has totally abandoned and rejected everything. Because the promise came through Jesus. And they are not following him. And so the natural assumption is, has God's word failed? I love how Paul, as a writer of of truth, anticipates the questions his readers will have. He's very good at that as he wrote much of the New Testament. And he begins not by a question, but by a statement. He doesn't say, has Has God's word failed? No, he doesn't do that. He says, it is not as though the word of God has failed. He states an affirmative. This word failed means, in the Greek language, it was used of a ship that went off of its course. Has God's word gone off course? Is the direction that God had set for his people, has that changed? One of the things that we need to wrestle with as we talk about Israel, and especially this passage, that some churches have defined or interpreted Israel as something new and spectacular in the church age, meaning the church is the new Israel. That you can't have a group of people that have largely rejected all of these promises and God still be true to his word. That just seems impossible. And so what they've done is they said that God has given the church as spiritual Israel. And that we receive all the spiritual promises that were made in the Old Testament in the New Testament age. And I, let me just say to that, that is false. It is completely false. There's no such thing as a replacement for God's chosen people. They are his people, and his promises will stand. And and maybe a lot of you this week in the news, have you've been kind of freshened to that again, that thought of who are these people that are peculiar and special for God, as in, in Israel today there is great turmoil. And I would say to you that, God doesn't need, and I want to be careful in how I say this, but God doesn't need that place on the map today for his purposes to stand. His people will rise up, and he will redeem them and restore them. But as Paul introduces this thought, it's not that God's word has gone off course. It's not like the 39 books of the Old Testament are invalidated. And that's really important for us to understand because we need to know as God's people that if those books are still true and stand, the books that we have that complete the scriptures, the 27 books of the New Testament, they stand as well. They're not in contradiction with the Old Testament. They're not, there's not any question that we should say, well, hey, if we can doubt that, what was said way, way back long ago, then maybe we should doubt this that was given to a church. No, all of it is true. We can take everything that God has said as true. And so what's the answer? It's not that the the problem is in the word of God itself. No, the, the problem existed 
in our understanding of who Israel, Israel truly is. That's how Paul answers it. He says, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. And you might think that doesn't make sense. How can you have a people and yet there are people within that people that are not really the people? Makes you wonder. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Now this is where we begin to see God's sovereign plan. His sovereign work on Israel's behalf. Now here's the gist of Paul's argument. I'm going to give it to you here and then we're going to dive deep into it in the preceding verses. But here's the gist of the argument. God is more concerned about spiritual identity than he is about national identity. It doesn't matter what country you belong to. It doesn't. God cares about the heart. Just because a person is from Israel doesn't mean that they're going to make it to the end of the age and receive the kingdom. In fact, there's too many promises and prophecies in Scripture that talk about that before the kingdom age begins, at the end of time, when Jesus comes back and returns in glory and power, that God will separate the nation of Israel into the believing people, the sheep and the goats that are separated. There will be a separation. There will be no Jewish person at the end of time that makes it through the great trouble of the tribulation and says, all right, because I'm a card-carrying member of the nation of Israel, I belong in the future. It is all going to go back to the truth. Have they believed in the Messiah that was sent? And here, what Paul is dealing with is he's reminding the church in Rome and he's reminding us today that not all people that are Jewish are Jewish in the sense of the promises in the Old Testament. Paul expressed this thought already in Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. It's not what you do on the outside. Now for us, that's we need to be thinking about what this means. I don't want to totally over-spiritualize this text, but the same is true for you. It doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter if you grew up in a Christian home and went to church every Sunday. It doesn't matter that you went through the physical outward ordinances like Paul dealt with in In Romans 2, about circumcision for the Jew, it doesn't matter if you were baptized or someone gave you a Bible that you periodically opened and blew the dust off and read from time to time. It doesn't matter how much work you did for the Lord and served in the church. It matters what was going on inside of the heart, that there is a true change because of who Jesus is. God cares about the heart. And for us who anxiously await the future promises of our final restoration, we hold on to the truth that God cares more about the heart than our spiritual pedigree. We longingly wait with expectation. 
for the return of Jesus. Why? Because when he returns, all things are made whole. It's not just so we can be better. It is so that the curse of sin is reversed. And the creation that God has given us is healed. And the name of Jesus and the person of Jesus rolls with power and great authority. And so to show us what he's talking about, about not everyone who is of Israel is true Israel, he gives us a picture of two groups of people to explain to us God's sovereign choice in calling people to be his. And what we're introduced to from the rest of verse 6 through really through verse 29 of this chapter is that belonging to God's or being God's true spiritual people has always been based on God's gracious and sovereign call. It's always been based upon God's sovereign and gracious call, not on ethnic identity. It is God's divine prerogative, not family pedigree, that makes a person his. The first example is introduced to us in verses 7 through 9. Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. That's an important distinction. Now we know, as we look back, that Israel thought of the patriarchs as Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. But when you read the accounts in the book of Genesis about Abraham himself, what you begin to understand is that Abraham had other children. In fact, Abraham had a child first with a lady named Hagar, who was the handmaid from Egypt of his wife, Sarah. See, God had made a promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, in what we call the Abrahamic covenant. And he had, God had come and introduced himself to Abraham and said, Abraham, Abraham, through you, I want to bless the world. And for that to occur, I will make you a great nation. And your descendants will outnumber the sands of the sea, the stars of the sky. And those who bless you I will bless, and those who curse you I will curse, and you will be a blessing for all the people in all the world. God made a promise. He was going to make a nation through this man. He was going to give them a land to live in. Abraham was kind of a nomad at that point. I mean, he lived in a foreign region. God called him out, and he said, I'm going to show you the place that is yours. And through a a, a large portion in the book of Genesis, we have God's dealings with this man, Abraham, as he is moving him from where he came from in his past to his future. And he wasn't even going to see all the promises in his lifetime. He wasn't going to be able to see it all. And yet God sovereignly called him. And along the way, unfortunately, because he wasn't perfect, he got ahead of the Lord. After spending some time in Egypt, we read in the book of Genesis that he came out and and his wife was given a handmaid named Hagar and his wife Sarah was barren. She could not not have children. And unfortunately for you ladies out there, the text of scripture says that this lady was so old she couldn't have children. So for all of eternity, she's known as that lady. 
And yet we see that they got ahead of the Lord. And what did his wife say? Well, sleep with my handmaid. She'll have a child. And her child will kind of graft in to this promise of what God is doing. Abraham slept with Hagar. She had a child. And that his name is Ishmael. But we know that that choice did not please the Lord. We know that the choice even was not healthy for Abraham's relationship with his wife because when the child was born, Sarah grew upset. I mean, it was her decision, right? It seemed like it was her plan. She wanted it. The child's born, and now she sees this boy that she couldn't give her husband. And what does she want to do? Well, she causes trouble in the home, and she's like, Abraham, you need to get rid of them. And so Abraham sends Hagar and Ishmael off on a journey. Now, God will provide for them in that journey. But God visits Abraham, and he says to him, And this is Pastor Todd's paraphrase, okay? So don't quote me on this. Oh, Abe, Abe, Abe. What are you doing? And he makes a promise to them. I'm going to come back to you in a year, and you're going to have a child. And the text tells us in in Genesis that his wife Sarah was listening off to the side, and what did she do? She laughed. So they had a son, and his name would be Isaac. And you know what Isaac means? God laughs. I love it. That God keeps his word and his way. Not all of them are children because they are Abraham's descendants. And oh, by the way, Abraham had more descendants. After Sarah died, he remarried Keturah, and they had six children, six male children together. None of those are descendants. I mean, there's, there's children. There's a lineage. But they're not the children of promise. And that word promise is so important when you look at this passage. The word promise, the children of promise in verse 8 that is highlighted. You know, you have the children of the flesh who are children of God. But the children of promise are regarded as descendants. The the, the children of promise focuses on God's miraculous work, his divine work. They're the ones that God is building these promises to. And so God visited. And in Genesis 21.12, God spoke the words that Paul quotes in verse 7. Through Isaac, your descendants will be named, not Ishmael, but through Isaac. Now, the children of the flesh, those from Hagar and Keturah, and the the children of the promise, which is from Isaac, the, the child from Sarah, we see God's miraculous intervention The promise came not based on human effort, but on divine work. Paul says later on in chapter 9 and verse 27, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea. That's a part of the promise that God gave Abraham. 
It is the remnant that will be saved. There can be a whole lot of people in the nation, but only there will be a remnant, a small group, a portion that is really truly Israel. It's not just a national decree. It is a child of promise. And what do we know about these people that will be saved as the remnant, the ones that God has called, the ones that God has appointed, the ones that God has set apart? Well, we go back to Genesis and how was Abraham reckoned righteous? By faith, not by works, not by anything that he did, but it's grace through faith. And so that's the first example, and, and maybe Paul's readers thought, okay, that seems great. But it's easy to settle because they have two different mothers. So Abraham ups the, or I mean, uh, Paul ups the ante, and he talks about Isaac and his children. He says, what about Jacob and Esau? They got the same mama. It's the same family. It's the same group. And so God, Paul again highlights God's sovereignty by bringing to light these two brothers who shared the same mother. These verses in, in verses 10 through 13 have caused many to feel uneasy, to say the least, about what they know about the Lord. This is why when I said last week, when we were looking at Romans chapter 9, there are some pastors, there are some teachers of the word that have totally skipped over chapter 9 altogether in a study on Romans because of what is said in this passage. And so I'm going to skip it. You need to figure it out on your own. No. We're not going to do that. Can I just say as we come across this passage and the difficult truths that are contained that the best thing that we can do as God's people is to let the text of Scripture stand for itself? That means sometimes we're going to come across difficult truths, and that's okay. I feel like I have a pretty good understanding of what's going on here, but even if I'm a shade off and God reveals otherwise, It's okay. So what do we see? And not only this, that's an important phrase, and not only this, what Paul is doing is he's building upon what he last revealed through Isaac and Ishmael. What does he say? And not only this, but there was Rebekah also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, the child of promise. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. The twins had not yet been born. This wasn't like a 10th birthday kind of party and there's two boxes and God was going to say, okay, I'm going to grade you on how well you lived to this point. And based on how good you were, I'm going to reveal who I'm going to choose to make the blessing to, who I'm going to choose to bring the descendants through. 
No, before the children were born, and the scriptures are clear, before they were born, before they ever did anything good or bad, God made a decision. He made a decision. God made a sovereign choice. Now, it's important to know when it comes to the doctrine of election, and that's what we're talking about by calling and choice, that God's choice, his sovereign choice, is not based on human merit. It's not based on how good he thinks you will become. Before they were born, God chose Jacob over Esau. Now, what do we know about these boys who became young men, who became old men? They were deeply flawed people, both of them. Jacob and Esau were equally deeply flawed. They were sinners. What do we know about Esau? Well, Esau was all about himself. He made rash, quick decisions to kind of take care of his human needs. I mean, he sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. His belly was too hungry, and he thought, well, I can forsake everything in the future because if I don't eat, I'm not going to make it. That's ridiculous. It really is. What do we know about Jacob? Well, Jacob's name reveals a lot about him. His name itself means to trip the heel. He's a manipulator. He spends a large portion of his life in the book of Genesis as we follow him, and he's the child that God had chosen, the child of promise, deceiving people. He deceived his brother. He and his mother got together and deceived his father and his brother. He deceives his uncle. I mean, he's always going about this business of kind of self-preservation. And yet God intervened in his life. When you stack the two together, it's not like any one of them stands out as this is the one that you should choose. And so why did God make the choice of one over the other? And this is something that we, I think we wrestle with. Why does God choose at all? What is it based on? Well, the text reveals to us kind of the, the idea of what God does in his choice. Verse 11, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but him who calls. God makes the choice because he's the God that calls. It's left with him. And we need to rest in that. We need to trust that. We need to understand that we don't have to have all of the answers And all the reasons, we just need to believe that as God calls, he calls based on his sovereign choice. What did God speak to Rebekah? It's quoted in verse 12, the older will serve the younger. Now this statement revealed an upside down nature of what God was going to do. Because although Esau was older by age, and we're talking probably minutes He would have been the child of the birthright, the child of blessing, the child that would naturally come where everything that was promised through Isaac would go through him. 
And God sovereignly told Rebekah that while he might be born first, he's going to reverse the order and he's going to actually choose Jacob over Esau. And the blessing and the authority will pass through the younger. And so God chose Isaac over Ishmael. Ishmael was born first. But God said, no, it's through Isaac, and I'm going to divinely work. And God chose Jacob over Esau, the younger. And he was going to divinely work. So what does Paul do in verse 13? He draws the lens back further from individuals to groups of people. And this is where we come across this very challenging verse. Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And we need to understand what Paul is saying, more importantly, what God is saying, and not what he is, he isn't saying. We just need to let this scripture stand for itself and begin to see what he's saying. Well, the context refers to what Paul is referring to. This quote that is found in verse 13 isn't found in the, the uh, verses in Genesis that surround the birth of the children. It's not quoted from Genesis that was written by Moses under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. No, this verse was actually written by the the last prophet of the Old Testament, the prophet Malachi. And in Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, let me read these verses for you. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation, and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins, thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down, and men will call them the wicked territory, and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. So the lens is drawn back from the individual boys to the nations that come from these boys. Jacob had some children. When you read the rest of the book of Genesis, he has a bunch more. They become the tribes of Israel. They become the nation that will go into Egypt and they will come out as slaves that are free, set free by Moses. Esau had a nation that came from him. His nation was the nation of Edom, the Edomites. They lived to the southeast of Israel. They lived in some of the hardest, rockiest, most inhabitable terrain in all of the known world. And they were a thorn in Israel's side. And all throughout the Old Testament, Edom and Israel were back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Eventually, Edom was absorbed through Roman uh, rule and reign, and, and the Edomites exist no longer. They're no longer a people. So when God says... Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. We need to be careful to not draw out the emotion of these words of love and hate. Love is better understood as accepted, favored. And hate is better understood as rejected. 
God sovereignly chose the nation of Israel over the nation of Edom. That's what Malachi is saying. The nation of Israel was saying to the prophet, how has God loved us? And God is saying, oh my word, my love is clear to you. I made a promise to the father of the nation, Jacob, that I would be your God and you would be my people. The other thing that we need to understand about this word hate that we have a tough time with is that Jesus told us to hate. Right? In Luke 14, 26, Jesus said, if you don't hate your father or mother, then follow me. Now, what is he saying? Should we hate our parents? Some of you kids are like, no, it's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying hate in the sense of evil and destruction and and this terrible brokenness in relationship. What he is saying is that you favor the Lord. Jesus is saying that you need to follow me first before you follow mom and dad. Now, parents, please, if your kids go home and say, my child has been completely disobedient because they keep saying, I'm following the Lord, call me. We will talk to them together. That's not what Jesus is saying. But he's saying, do you love the Lord first? Is he of priority in first place? Someone said to Charles Spurgeon, they said, as to Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. I cannot understand why God should say that he hated Esau. And Spurgeon replied to the woman, it's not my difficult, it's not my difficulty, madam. My trouble is to understand how God could love Jacob in the first place. That's really where it rests. The point in all of this is that God has divinely appointed a people from the nation of Israel that will be his forever. It may have seemed in Paul's time and ours nationally that Israel has rejected. And yet God's purpose is going to stand forever in the future. God will keep his promises There will be a people from Israel that will believe in the Messiah. As we close, I want you to think about two things. I want to encourage you that nobody nor any circumstance will confound God's word in your life. There is not news that you can receive that will cause anything in God's word to shake or tremble in your life. His word is secure. It is firm. It lasts forever. You will not fail in this life because God's word does not fail, period. And the second thing is I want you to consider where you are, where you stand. Paul approached this subject in our passage when he says, that is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise. What are you putting your hope in this morning? Because you think you came from a heritage and a pedigree and you've earned it or deserve it? Or have you considered what it means to be a child of the promised and more importantly, the promised one, Jesus? Have you believed that Jesus is Lord and Savior? 
Listen, where you came from can't save you. Only God can do that. So I want to pray for you and ask that God, through his spirit, would challenge your heart to um, challenge you where you need to be with him. Let's pray.